Welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode 61. Our guest is one you may remember from this past February. Her name is Catherine Kohler, and her play, Jane's Second Date, was featured as one of our very first Valentine's Day-themed plays. Catherine hails from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and is the recipient of numerous writing awards, including the Alberta Playwriting Competition Grand Prize in 2013. We asked Catherine back to onstage, offstage, because one look at her body of work revealed a tendency to write about serious social issues such as health care, the police-civilian relationship, and the ethics, or lack thereof, of genetically modified foods. I began by asking Catherine about her start in writing about individuals dealing with issues much bigger than themselves. This one is part of a trilogy of how industry affects people, especially in this region, right? Right. So I started off with a play about coal, under, under, underground coal mining, which is, you know, largely a thing of the past now uh, in this part of the world, but not everywhere else. Does, does that mean that the coal's been mined out already or? There... We've switched to surface mining, right? Big, okay. huge strips of land being um, removed to uh, and using huge heavy equipment to. So which, which of these plays did you write first? The first one was Coal Valley, The Making of a Miner. What was uh, the uh, reception for that? How long did it take you to write that? What kind of research did you do? And uh, Yeah, lots of research. Uh, it was actually a commission from the town of Drumheller for the year of the coal miner because it, Drumheller, Red Deer River region is where a lot of the highest grade coal was extracted between mm-hmm. the wars. Um, and I took the commission because my maternal grandfather was an underground coal miner here in Edmonton, in the Edmonton area, but I never really knew him. He died when I was very young. So I took the commission to um, find out about him, to um, get to know him, as it were. So uh, that was a pretty fast uh, turnaround, you know, from beginning research to having the production. It was about a year, pretty fast, because it was a commission. What did you actually discover about him? I guess what I said about, you know, the the old-style coal miner, he was his own boss. He, uh, as long as there weren't any um, strikes and so on, uh, he could work very steadily and make a very good living for himself and his family. But he also had the dangers of the mine, and he had to rely on his buddies, on his co-workers, Although they worked very independently, they needed to watch each other's back, right? So I found that... These are all essentially independent contractors, aren't they? That's right. Um, And a very sort of male um, kind of um, community of of bonding. And, and, you know, when they come up to the surface, uh, it's actually kind of a different world. You know, the underground world and the surface world are, are two different entities. I found... I found uh, lots of actual comparisons to writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a completely different world. So I I felt um, I felt an affinity, and uh, it was really interesting exploring that period of history between the wars when uh, things were were quite quite different. So can you can you describe the the differences between being underground and being above ground with a family i mean underground he's got his buddies as you say all these independent contractors all down there for the same the same reason and what's jumping into my mind right now is that 
Normally, I think we're used to hearing that when miners go down, they're all part of the same company. They're all used to working for the same purpose. So they're all working together. But if these, if these fellows are all down there trying to bring up as much coal as possible, in essence, competing with each other, mm-hmm. how does that work? Yeah, competing. Uh, well, because they're you know you mine your own room, right? You you get you 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 get your own area and you mine your own room. But the, what I did find, and uh, you know, I don't know if it was just in my imagination, but I found that they brag a lot about you know what they got later in the bar. There was, was a lot like, of that. This is like fishing that, stories. A lot of that going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the other thing about underground was it was, there's a sense of sameness. Like I've actually gone down into one of the mines, um, one of the old mines and the temperature is always the same. There's, there's no wind, you know, there's this kind of, um, uh, you know what you're going to get. Whereas when you come up to the surface, you've got, you know, family issues, you've got weather, you've got, you know, politics, you've got. Uh, as I said, you know, strikes were uh, were uh, um, were going on then a lot. Um, labor organizing, uh, yeah, yeah. so it it's. I found that the you know the guys in my play really liked being underground. That was uh, a place they felt very much at home, even though it had dangers of you know gas leaks and explosions and etc. Right. Uh, but they all knew they were all they'd all sort of trained each other on how to on how to um, manage that right and when you think they had no sort of safety um, uh, training manual from the company that was just it, it was it was uh, knowledge that was sort of passed between the brotherhood I, I guess that's one of the things I meant by this sense of camaraderie and watching out for each other. Yes. And although there was competition, but it, it, it's like you say, fishing stories. Oh, I got, I got 10 cars today. Yeah. Oh, I got 12, you know, how did their families stand up to this? Uh, Cause they were, they couldn't have been home that much. Right. Uh, well, they, they'd work a, a normal shift every day. Um, but there's always the worry that something could happen. So I think the, the women and families uh, left on the surface there were always kind of uh, on edge, always on edge. You sure, know, if, yeah. that, if that whistle blew, something was wrong, right? So uh, I, I found that, um, I mean, in Canada here, you know, we, we have so many industries that are like that, you know, uh, in Atlantic Canada, and you have it too in the U.S. when guys go off uh, deep sea fishing. I mean, that's... That's there's always the risk. There's right. always the danger, right? Um, so, what was the? When was this produced, and what was the reception? Did did you get feedback from you know miners, people down there? What? Uh, how how did this? You know, how did this resound? Yeah, I I did have some old timers come to the show. Uh, I'm just checking on the date here. What was the date of that? Um, I want to say here it is 2005. I was right. 2005 is when it was um, produced down in Drumheller. Yeah, and I had uh, I had some old timers say, "Yeah, you you got it. That's that's how that's how it was, you know." But for me, having that personal interest um, about my grandfather really kind of helped me um, 
imagine, I right. guess. Being... A, a personal insight to it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you followed that up with? Uh, the Seed Savers, okay. and that was 2009. And um, because uh, at the turn of the century, now we can say that, <laughs> right. Yes. The, yeah. The whole uh, genetically modified um, seed issue became pretty big here in Canada. We had uh, a Supreme Court case between uh, Monsanto and Percy Schmeiser, a Saskatchewan farmer, who was sued for having genetically modified canola in his field. Uh, he hadn't bought it. He hadn't um, paid the royalty for it, and he. Um, said that the wind must have blown it in, uh, and the company took him to court. And in Canada, that case was a 5-4 decision. It was um, sort of a um, situation where Percy did not have to pay damages, but I believe that all of the cases in the U.S. between Monsanto and uh, farmers always went in Monsanto's favor. So it was, it was a big deal. Why do you think that was? He asked naively. You know, we have... Um, because I've heard... Sorry to interrupt, but they, I have heard of these types of cases on at least three separate occasions in other parts of the world mm-hmm. where Monsanto goes, or whoever it is, goes after the small farmers because all of a sudden their GMO crops are popping up in, in the farmers' fields. Mm-hmm. And... You know, the, the farmers have all said across the board that they wanted nothing to do with it. They were trying to keep the, the, the GMO seeds out of there because they were corrupting their own crops. Yeah, yeah. But Monsanto keeps winning. Yeah, they do. Uh, it has to do with the intellectual property rights in Canada and how set against sort of the right of farmers to sow their own seeds. Why is that even an issue? Why? I mean, the right of the farmer to sow his own seeds. Yeah, I know. Why is it? Uh, that's that's a really good question. And you see that is has huge ramifications in countries where um, it's really difficult to buy. Uh, it's, it's difficult to have the money to buy seed, right? Uh, saving seed is much more economical. And how subsistence farmers have survived for for, for eons, right? Right. So um, I thought that this would be a really interesting, dramatic situation because you've got friends who may not agree. One farmer may want it, one not. You've got a family who may not agree. One part of the family may say yes. You know, one generation may say yes, let's go for it. Another generation will say, no, we've always done it this way. We've, we've developed our own seed. Let's just keep on using our own seed. And then you have lovers who may also disagree. So I've, I found uh, a way to include all three of those kinds of relationships in the Seed Savers. And my play is, is, is you know, two characters, Mindy and Joe, the, the, the farmers who've been married for 50 years, their neighbor, Solo, who has decided to try GMO seed. And, of course, the, 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 um, it's cross-pollinated with the canola in Mindy and Joe's fields. Of course it is, yeah. And then the long-lost sort of granddaughter, Sky, who comes from Toronto to sort of 
reconnect with her roots and falls in love with Solo, but has this, um, you know, sense of betrayal that he has hurt her grandparents. And how does she continue with him if her grandparents are now um, up against a huge multinational uh, corporation in um, in the courts? So that's the situation of the seed savers. And... Uh, I, I think it's still pretty relevant today. Uh, that was canola, but now we've got all sorts of other crops that are being tested. And It could be. Um, there, there are places around the world that are banning GMO seeds and especially, you know, lashing out back against Monsanto. That's correct. And uh, Canadian farmers cannot sell their GMO canola to Europe. Or Japan so that creates another you know that's that's another dramatic situation parts of the world are saying no some parts of the world are saying yes so how do we deal with that as um, a society and a culture it's uh, it's a really tough problem it is, it's, it's an exceptionally tough problem because you talk about things like that in the singular like a society or a culture and they are the very antithesis of anything singular. You know, it's, there are millions of parts of each of them, and each one of those millions of parts has an, an opinion that's going to be slightly different or radically different than the rest of it. That's correct. And in the meantime, while we're trying to decide, the uh, you know because certain crops cross pollinate so readily and easily, uh, you're you're ending up with no uh, conventional canola anymore in this country. Uh, it's all GMO. It it's just spreads like you can't stop it. You know, nature just uh, runs with it. If it's out there, nature runs with it. So right. uh, then you have a, a situation where there's no going back, and that's the place where I think we're going to have to really face. Um, Once know. it's in, you can't get it out again. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Uh... Penalties that nobody thinks about once, uh, or very few people think about once they start upon these these financial ventures that seem rosy in the front. You know, these things are easier to grow. They're more resistant to you know, bed bugs and boll weevils or whatever. Um, and a farmer's living is made year by year, and you can't bank on anything with any kind of consistency. So... You've got yeah. that dilemma. You know, should I should I go for the scientifically altered seed that will you know, may guarantee me three years of great crops, or you know, stick with what I've done before? And and I, that's one of the things I address in the play is that heroism of being a farmer. It is not an easy job, uh, but uh, I think you just brought out another um, thing that maybe we have to look at. In, in every sort of bioethical di dilemma, long-range thinking versus short-range thinking. You know, we have to uh -huh. be able to balance both of those um, optics, I guess, to, to make a, an informed decision. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure about balancing as much as bringing back the concept of long-range thinking because the way corporations are run today and the way a lot of businesses are run we need profits and we need profits now because everything moves so quickly. We don't invest 
10 years down the line. We invest 10 hours down the line. Mm -hmm. And this short-sightedness basically ignores the future, and the future will not be ignored. It's inevitable. And if you if you're going to be an environmentalist, you have to think far, far ahead. Absolutely. Know? I want to um, switch over to a different topic for a little while here. Uh, you've got a whole section on your website, which, by the way, is CatherineKohler.ca. Um, health ethics plays. Yeah. And you list uh, of, uh, some of these are two acts. A lot of them are shorter plays. But they all deal with some element of healthcare or uh, ethics. What's spurred you to write this batch of of plays? Okay, right. Well, that's it's really interesting you bring that up because I've just collected uh, nine of these short plays on health ethics and packaged them up and sent them off to a publisher because I think they need to get get out into um, the wider world. They started off. Uh, by a request from an ethicist who said to me, she said, well, I I have to go into the hospitals and do these professional development days for nurses, and I don't want to just lecture at them. I'd like to show them uh, a dramatic situation in a play that could then spark some discussion about health ethics. And so she was the one who who asked me to go ahead and do this. And so I did a whole bunch for her. And then others got commissioned by other places. And two in the collection are actually translations, one into Cree and one into French. So um, the idea is to, you know, bring these plays to different populations. Uh, But health ethics is is a really tough, um, um, you know, hospitals today are now businesses, right? Uh, now we, are, have, yeah. we have a different healthcare system than you do there. Uh, we have universal healthcare here, so anyone can go and get treated. Um, uh, you don't have to have health insurance. It helps if you do, but you don't have to. Uh, So we have all sorts of issues about resource allocation uh, for nurses. How do you um, stay in the moment and engaged with your patient when you know that that patient doesn't want to be here? Maybe that's a patient who has been in and out of the hospital uh, 10 times this month and is uh, addicted and has no interest in being treated. So uh, what do you do when you've got families who are sort of getting in the way of the patient care? Or um, what do you do when you have hierarchies in the hospital itself which uh, make it difficult for you to do your job or to do your job in a way where you're not leaving each day with some kind of moral residue? So it's the health ethics plays are directed at mainly nurses because nurses are at the bedside every day. Yes, they are. And uh, it's again the heroism of being a nurse. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, each time I research these plays, I, I wonder how how do people manage? It's it's such a difficult um, line of work. Let's pick one or two of these and talk about these particular issues. Is there one that sparked a particularly spark, sparked a larger reaction than some of the others? 
Well, let's look at Queenie's Castle because it's fresh in my mind. I just saw it uh, recently in French. And uh, this is the one that's also been translated into Cree. Right. It has two um, First Nations or Aboriginal characters in it. One is a nurse, uh, a new nurse, who's kind of, you know, um, very idealistic. And then she's got a patient who's been in and out of the hospital lots and lots of times, but who's just lost a baby, who's just um, had this carriage. So um, here you have a situation where uh, the nurse uh, is trying to um, treat the patient who doesn't want to be treated, but the patient recognizes the nurse from before and recognizes their common um, background, as it were, and they do this with language. They actually speak Cree to each other during the, the play, uh, and they manage to reach a point where they, the, the nurse has been able to calm down the patient enough to treat her, and the patient has had a little bit of time to decide what she's going to do next. Now, what she's going to do next is leave the hospital like she always does, but she leaves with a sense that somebody cares about her. Why is she constantly leaving the hospital? Uh, she's got other things to do. She's got so much personal um, uh, um, trouble that she just has to get, for example, her, her boyfriend who actually has caused the miscarriage by um, being pretty rough with her, um, has uh, left her and her girlfriend has moved in with her boyfriend. This has all happened in the time that she's been in the hospital. And she needs to get uh, a piece of um, clothing, a little sort of baby outfit that she bought for her baby. She needs to get that. She, she desperately needs to have that to remember this lost child. So she's got things she's got to do, even though she's got, um, you know, infections and um, addictions and all sorts of other things going on. She's got other things that are more important to her than her health, and that's often the way it is. The last thing I want to touch on is uh, a book you wrote a while back called Working the Beat, the Edmonton Neighborhood Foot Patrol, and... Yes, I am going to uh, uh, pair this up against some of the things that have been happening down here in America uh, with the police lately um, being accused uh, or being on film of mistreating, maltreating, and uh, killing some of mm -hmm. our own citizens. And it's becoming an issue. It's becoming, it's, it has become a very, very serious issue. Yes. People are saying that the police are out of control. People are saying that the police need an oversight committee. Um, it's fairly well known that the New York City Police Department may be the fourth or fifth largest army in the world uh, and one of the most well-equipped. So we have issues down here with the police that we need to address. And the legislature uh, of Edmonton, did something interesting. They, they put their, their constables on foot patrol and personalized this. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah. Um, I'm just grabbing the book here to have a look because it's been a while. Um, but 
and I have heard of the difficulties in the U.S. I think the word that that I see is the militarization of police. I didn't want to be that extreme, but yes, the militarization. Yes, that's that's the commentary that I've that I have read, uh, which is really really scary. Um, Yeah, working the beat. This was about ooh, I'd say about twenty years ago at least, Uh, but it's. It's based on an, an initiative then, which we still have today, which is great, of creating mini uh, police, sort of like storefront police stations. Uh, so they're very small. They're in little malls. They're, you know, in um, uh, strip malls generally all over the city. Uh, with big signage that says police, and you can walk in at any time and get assistance from possibly a volunteer at the desk. The the offices are run by volunteers, so those are citizens who want to volunteer for the police force. They'll do paperwork, answer answer questions, um, be on the phones. And the police who work there uh, walk their neighborhood. So they're not in the vehicle. Um, They're sort of not behind glass, as it were. Um, They're on bicycles. They're walking. Some are on motorcycles, I believe, as well. Uh, They walk in pairs. um, And they get to know their neighborhood. They get to know um, the the known offenders, they get to know uh, the shop owners, the storekeepers, the uh, residents, and they have their ear to the ground all the time. That's how they that's how they work. Uh, and the outcome of this is that you have um, a kind of policing where uh, the police are visible all the time, but they're not in an aggressive um, posture, right? Right. They're walking the street like everyone else. They're talking just like everyone else. They're going into the bars, chatting just like anyone else. Uh, of course, they're not drinking, but they're going in there to see who's there, to find out information, to um, try to do preventive policing is what they're doing, to stop things before they get out of hand. How'd that work out? Uh, it's well. We've we've still got the the neighborhood foot patrols. It started off in I think I believe it was thirteen problem areas, and I think it's expanded out now to um, uh, I don't know the exact number, but it's, it says here twenty one. Twenty one at that time, but they, there there must be more by now. Uh, so we. I, I like it. I like being able to uh, approach a constable on the street if um, I have an issue or if I've seen something strange, uh, you know, or or if I think that they should check something out. What um, happened to the crime rates in these areas? Well, they found uh, they found that um, they they were holding steady. They, you know, because this was done that long ago um we can't maybe sort of say with all accuracy right today without going to them and asking but the fact that they're continuing to use these foot patrols in neighborhoods tells me that it's working okay yeah yeah 
Um, it's I'm sort of based on a British system of policing um, of the old, you know, Bobby's. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, I'm, I'm surprised that it hasn't been embraced in the U.S. I thought it had in some places. Here in Ithaca, we have several uh, local uh, small police stands, almost exactly to what you're describing. Um, in an effort to uh, make the police more visible, less threatening, more available. And, and part of the community. I mean, the concept Absolutely, is yeah, community yeah. policing. So you get to know your neighborhood constables by name, by first name, on a first name basis. Even. Uh, it's, it's getting harder and harder to gain access to the police these days uh, due to the number of incidents that have been happening all over our particular country. Mm -hmm. Ithaca itself had an incident uh, a while back which polarized for a while. And two of our local theater groups in town have both produced plays about the civilian slash police relationship. Clearly it's an it's it's an issue of great concern and great worry and these are testimonial and interview plays. And I interviewed uh one of these groups a little while back, the Civic Ensemble, uh, and I've yet to interview the other, but that will happen. But the question I asked them, the question I'm going to ask you is, what was your access like to the police? They are notorious for banding together and remaining closed mouth about most things hmm. that have to do with their job. Um, for good or ill, because whether we're prepared to hear what they do every day or we're not prepared to do, or maybe they don't want to admit what they do, uh, it makes for an interesting exercise. Uh, did you run up against cooperation, non-cooperation? How'd that work? Well, uh, it, for this project, uh, how I researched it was um, I had a meeting with all the neighborhood foot patrols, um, uh, I think, as you say, I think there were 21. Um, uh -huh. And I arranged to go on walk-alongs which with, with one of the constables in every single one of those um, neighborhoods for a four-hour shift. So I went out with them and um, trailed along with them as they did their job. So I saw them, you know, having to restrain people. I saw them having to, you know break down doors to get into uh, to access um places that they needed to investigate i saw i saw all sorts of things and the other thing i did was and so and they and they did talk to me as we went along and in fact one of the things i did in my book i'm not sure if you noticed that is i included what i called drama bits um actual you know verbatim conversations that i heard between uh, the constables and clients or customers uh, and I included that in the book because I found that just so fascinating, just the way they spoke to their clients. Um, I, um, I wanted to record that because I felt that uh, they were really trying to be a part of the fabric of the community. The other thing I did is I left questionnaires for um, businesses, um, homeowners, uh, all sorts of people along each route and collected them later and got lots of information that way too from clients or customers. 
So, um, and then I took a photographer around and we did lots of, um, photo shooting. Um, so it was a lot of fun, I must say, to research, but Sounds I didn't, very interesting. Yeah. you know, because I was dealing with constables one-on-one, I, I didn't run into any of, of what you, what you're talking about. And also they were really new to it too. Remember that this was the first year of the neighborhood foot patrol program. So everybody was feeling their way, uh, and everybody was new to it. So, um, we, we explored together as it were. What made you pursue this in the first place? Uh, Again, that was a commission um, from the police department. uh, Found me. I don't know how they found me, but um, asked me to do the job, and and I was I was happy to do it. And in fact, a lot of the um, a lot of what I saw during that research period trickles into some of my other plays. You know, you can. You can probably tell even the health ethics plays, um, you know, because I, I was in contact with, um, high, shall I say, um, uh, high users of the police service or hospitals or other community services, right? Yes. So um, that gave me a kind of a peek into um, a world that is not my own, right? Uh, so that was all really valuable. I've, I've used what I saw in that research period in, in several of my plays. Mm-hmm. So you were, you were commissioned by uh, the Edmonton Police Service to do this book. That's right. Um, did they have any say about what finally ended up in it? Uh, no. Um, they... Uh, as far as edits and things go, um, I think there were some suggested edits, but not anything that was, uh, out of, um, the ordinary at all. Nothing uh, proper. In fact, I think I even, at the end of the book, made some suggestions to them, like their signage should be bigger at each of the locations. It should not be confidential. It should be big, huge block letters that say police. Right. And um, they've actually taken that um, initiative to correct that signage since. So I also mentioned, I think I mentioned that I thought there should be some female constables out there in that capacity. Absolutely. uh, So, so I, you know, they, they let me, you know, put those um, recommendations at the back of the book. That was, so it was really my, it was my book, but it was about them. Uh And, uh, it's been used, I think, in several um, training situations um, for police um, here in Canada and I think in the U.S. as well. Who are your favorite playwrights and whose work do you, you know, will you travel to see? Who, who got you started in this and what was your inspiration? Yeah, interesting. I think my, my first inspiration was when I was a young student in London on a fine arts tour and we, of course, went to lots and lots of plays. And the magic of the lights going down and being able to enter a new world um, of someone else's imagining, but being a part of that was what got, got me excited about writing plays. I remember Under um, Milkwood by Dylan Thomas was one of the ones that stood out for me then. And since then, um, favorite playwrights, uh, Michel Tremblay, um, a Canadian playwright. Marcia Norman is one of my favorites as well. Um, I, I love them all. Um, I've got so many 
plays here in my office I'm looking at. Uh, I love them all for different reasons. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the playwright being at the theater and seeing other people's work. Um, oh, I'm, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> the point of, I'm out, you know, twice a week seeing plays at least. Oh, uh, lucky you. I am. I'm lucky that I was, uh, given a position on a, on a, a jury for the last three years. So I've, I've been able to go see anything. Well, actually I have to see everything. Um, uh, you know, with complimentary tickets, which is always fun, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. <laughs> that I, helps. I believe that we have to go out and see each other's work. I think we have to read each other's work. Um, it's it's so important. Um, well, I it helps us discovered grow. Annie Baker this year. She was new to me. I was excited to, to read her work. Sarah Rules plays I've been excited to read as well. So I'm constantly discovering... Um, you know, new writers all the time. Yeah. That's great. That's wonderful. Well, Catherine Kohler, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you back on our show. And uh, congratulations on the works you've completed and the issues you've tackled. And we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Well, thank you very much, George. I appreciate it. <laughs>